This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project where I talk with artists about their work and their lives. The ultimate goal here is to give listeners a better understanding about the experiences and people behind the artwork. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, straight on, and unscripted. This episode profiles Ian Cooper. Ian makes sculpture that ranges from minimal and quiet to more elaborate and heavy. He often utilizes painted metal, different types of fabric, and wood to make forms that might depict a guillotine blade, an enlarged golf pencil, anthropomorphic film screens, or objects that resemble pieces of masking tape and door hinge hardware. Visual abbreviation and scale manipulation are consistent devices, allowing each sculpture to operate like a stage prop or a cartoonish version of itself. The work is lovingly crafted and theatrical and wades through ideas that connect to moments of transgression, interdependence, and coming of age. We recorded this conversation at Downstairs Projects, which is a non-commercial gallery space in the South Park Slope section of Brooklyn. Is there anything that's like sort of a no-go zone? No, I mean, actually, I feel like the funny thing about this is that I'm at such a specific crossroads yeah. in my life right now. So it's a kind of an almost hilariously interesting moment for this. Yeah. Because I feel like I I'm not sure I'm in this in between sense of self okay. right, right now. Okay. So no, I think nothing is off the table. Okay. Um and I'm interested in talking about the collision of what I was and what I am now and okay. and that all that stuff. So is it too heavy to jump right into that since you brought it up no no this like this like cross section that you described yeah and you're recording now yeah we're going okay cool no turning back all right (laughs) (laughs) so well let me back up a little bit because i i feel like i've reached out to you about this project probably last year at some point Mm -hmm. and like you said yeah maybe but not right now and Mm -hmm. then i feel like out of nowhere and it may have been around like uh, you and i communicating about getting the kids together you're like oh you won't believe what's happening. I'm suddenly moving to LA. I'm ready to talk to you right. about the craziness in my life right now. So maybe that's a good starting point. I yeah. mean, what what transpired? Maybe you can mm-hmm. just like walk me through this decision to leave New York to move to LA. Is that part of this whole cross, cross section thing? Definitely. I mean, also just to um, for people listening yeah. too, I think it's really interesting how I've known you for a long time yeah. and then our lives intersected in this really um, natural way through just living near each other. Yes. And, and also you going first, having children yeah. um, and then me following. And I feel like there's always been this fun sort of parallel um, experience we've had totally. as, as friends. Yeah. Um, and so I think the reason I was always reticent about doing this is that uh, when you, first asked me mm-hmm. and it may even have been longer ago. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, because I feel like even when I did the show at Halsey in 2015 or 16, mm-hmm. I feel like it was maybe even in the ether at then. Yeah. Um, is that I've been just having like a crazy life crisis. Right. So, and I think I was reticent to even go on the record about anything mm-hmm. at that time. Um, but so And I think it's funny that I called you after this because it kind of makes sense. It's almost like I had an epiphany. Yeah. It felt like it when you sent me that message Mm -hmm. or called me. I can't remember, but it's like, oh, something's going on. (laughs) And I think also, Joey, it felt like the 
I was afraid the ship was going to sail. Like I, I always wanted to do this. And then I was worried that all of a sudden rebooting my life would, um, negate the opportunity mm -hmm. to have this discourse. You right. Know? So, yeah. So should I explain what happened to me? Yeah. <laughs> so I just finished, I just graduated Bard college, the mm -hmm. MFA program in mm -hmm. the sculpture department. Um, just this, uh, uh, end of July this past year in 2017. Mm -hmm. And, um, as I was installing my thesis show, I was literally in the parking lot of my dorm building alone. My wife and child were in Los Angeles visiting her mom and dad. And, um, I got a phone call from a friend of mine that I've known for a very long time, um, who had recently moved to Los Angeles to, uh, work for our mutual, very close friend, who's my best friend and since for 25 years, mm -hmm. who is the actor turned director, Jordan Peele. Mm -hmm. And I've had a great relationship with this guy. His name is Wynn Rosenfeld. He's actually the president of the, of the production company now, Jordan's right. production company. And when I saw this call coming in, I thought to myself, Wynn and I don't talk on the phone, but you just don't have that kind of friendship. Right? Yeah. Um, and so, and something, I was sitting in my Subaru Forester and I was, I remember being covered in sawdust and I had to go install my thesis show and I was just like really tired and I saw that call and I thought this feels possibly like something that will be, um, uh, life changing. Yeah. You Maybe, just had that feeling when you saw that call coming in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I answered the call and I, um, he basically explained to me very clearly something that had been kind of in the ether over many years of Jordan moving to having lived in LA and, and especially after the success of key and peel yeah. that, um, and I helped, I helped revise the script for get out for the four year, three years he was working on it. Mm -hmm. And when basically was like, um, it's time, will you move to LA and will you become the creative director of our company? Right. And it was just such a cinematic, ironically, a cinematic moment sitting in this dirty car and just feeling like I'm about to turn 40, mm -hmm. although I'm in grad school in a dorm. Had just recently become a parent. What Ivy yeah. was, what, almost two at that point? Yeah, he was a year and a half. Year and a half, right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it just felt like, God, I literally had this moment where I was like, in my mind, I was like, yes, you know, even though I didn't say yes, of course. Right. I just said, Oh my God. And things of like, Oh my God, many times. And I got to talk to Rachel and right. But Rachel said, even when I called her right after she said, she was like, I have to go to the bathroom because I have a feeling we're about to change our entire life. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess, I mean, just to back up a little bit, you're, you've for some context, you're born and raised in New York city, correct? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and had, had been working in the arts in some capacity, whether making art or working as uh, an art handler or some sort of studio assistant, I'm sure, mm -hmm. um, at certain points, for the better part of your adult life. Yep. And then suddenly this opportunity to like almost put that down for a second yeah. and, and hang on to like the idea of, of using art as a lens to experience life, mm -hmm. um, but put the idea of like making objects, which is what you do mm -hmm. down and then going to work as a creative director for a film production company. Right. Right. So 
that's like a sort of an identity Huge, leap. Hugely. Um, and you went for it. I went for it. it although um, not without, you know, uh, apprehension and, yeah. and anxiety. Sure, of course. But I did have this funny feeling. I know this seems like uh, cliche, but I literally felt like I realized in that phone call that I had just been at a breaking point. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you took the cinematic um, moment three quarters through a film where the character is at their lowest point, mm-hmm. right? Like when, let's say in Lethal Weapon, when Mel Gibson's just being like tortured with the cattle prod. <laughs> and it's as if you were watching that on VHS and you paused it. So it was just happening with a little shakiness forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I realized that was sort of like the past three years of my life. Oh man, it's a good image. Yeah. Not a good image, but a good yeah. piece of language to describe also feeling. yeah exactly internally more yeah than, i saw some students last night from uh, the other factor of course is my whole teaching oh yeah, yeah yes yes of course so that's course. another thing i put completely on the shelf right but i saw some students who just graduated last year last mm-hmm. night at the opening and they said um at some point having a beer at the after party i said i'm so happy i got to work with you guys um i hope you know that was my lowest low <laughs> <laughs> that's funny mm-hmm. um well, I guess, I mean, maybe to like sort of direct ourselves towards your art and the sure. stuff that you make. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned, you know, sort of the shifting in identity. And one of the things that I like to um, tackle in this project is how we um, describe ourselves and what we do as artists mm-hmm. to people that we're just meeting. Yeah. Or um, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's someone at a party that is like, it has nothing to do with art. Mm-hmm. Like when someone asks you what type of artist you are, mm-hmm. whether they're in the art game or not, do you have like a like a prepared line? Like, what's your response to that sort of sure. query? I mean, it's interesting because I think the past couple of years of graduate school has helped uh, underscore that in a way that's been more nuanced than what I've said in the past. Sure, um, but I mean, I make sculpture like full stop, and I don't think I've ever made anything except sculpture really, mm-hmm. even with things you know, our flat-ish or our image, uh, projected image. Um, and I think for me, um, there, the pleasure of, of reconciling materiality mm-hmm. is such a part of everything I do, although it's never, I hope, it never sort of um, supersedes the, the conceit of the idea. Sure. So I think the marriage of those two things and the flirtation with that is like the thing I'm the most I would say I'm the most interested in over mm-hmm. all this time. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've always thought of you as a sculptor as well, mm-hmm. or someone that definitely works in three dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I feel like it's important to acknowledge that you have made works on paper. You've made additioned work. Right. And that was actually my introduction to your work. Oh yeah. I don't course. know if, if I've ever mentioned this, but the first artwork of yours I ever came in front of mm-hmm. was the edition of the, you can't do that in television lockers. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember what year that was? I want to say that was 2009. 2009. That feels right because Mm -hmm. at the time I was, I don't know if I've ever told you this, Mm. but I had a day job working, uh, um, in the photo department at Nickelodeon magazine. Oh my God. And I remember a mutual friend showed me that work Mm -hmm. and I said, Oh man, I want to see if I can get the, some of the someone here in this office to acquire this for and i i like sent a a jpeg of it to my boss who sent it to someone else and then like a week later i got um an email back and they were like 
So who's this artist? We have lawyers that want to talk to you. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, never mind. You know, I mean, that, that was, it was disheartening for me because right. I was like, just, this is a great piece of art. Mm-hmm. I tangentially know this guy. I haven't, I hadn't met you right. at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but their reaction to it was one out of legal concern. Of course. Um, so I dropped it, but that was, that was my sort of introductory to your work was like wow. this weird threat from a lawyer coming at me after me trying to like push this thing forward into, you know, m- make a sale for you in right. some weird way, but also just like get connect it, the, connect it, yeah. connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so crazy. Well, I will, yeah. I'll say that subsequently. And then I'm, I'm happy. I didn't know that. Let's just say, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because of my whole early part of my career where I was, um, you know, mining actual co- pop cultural, um, IPs, as they say, um, I was always fearful of that. In fact, my first huh. solo show in New York, um, I, there was a lot of review. There was a lot. It was in the press a lot, and I was just worried that someone was going to be like, "What's this recreation of ET's um, uh, communication device?" <laughs> yeah, like the speaking spell, right? Yeah, speaking, yeah. I was like, "Is Spielberg going to come down upon me?" Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's the, what I was going to say too. Interestingly, is that about a year ago, um, and one of uh, Sarah Greenberger Rafferty's colleagues, when she was teaching at Hampshire mm-hmm. she found out was married to is married to one of the kids from you can't do that on television right. now as a grown man of course right who was one of the child actors inside those lockers no kidding and she wanted to buy that it was one of, I think it's a, almost the last edition that was yep. exists for her husband yep. and so it did come full circle and he wrote to me this really thoughtful email after the surprise and um, that's cool yeah so it was nice yeah yeah uh, maybe I'll take a second to um, describe some of the sculptural pieces that I know of yours cool. and sort of what I think about mm-hmm. when I'm in front of them. Um, you know, there's there's always a little bit of like dark humor involved for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like you pay attention to, or, or, or like the idea of a hinge or something that allows one plane to open up and close and move is right. important in your work Definitely. for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that for me connects to openings mm-hmm. and what's on the other side. Right. And um, if I want to know what's on the other side mm-hmm. or, sh- you know, maybe, maybe I don't want to open that door or, or like flap that hinge open. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, film in a weird way comes in to play for me when I think about what I saw as the early sort of pull screens that, that our teachers would set up in grade school for yes. a projection. Cause I feel like you made some sculptures more than one mm-hmm. that were like anthropomorphic versions of that holding themselves up. Mm-hmm. I think about abbreviated forms, almost like cartoonish features, like the four fingered hands that were holding those uh, things mm-hmm. up. So like this round edge, I think about edges right. um, and sharpness, mm-hmm. um, but almost like a, like a, like a nerf version of it. I'm thinking of like your, your guillotine blade that's mm-hmm. sort of cartoonish in a way and like clearly couldn't cut anything, mm-hmm. but it's there mm-hmm. and it's menacing and there's some like blood, uh, reference on it, mm-hmm. but it's got, sort of cartoonish mm-hmm. and funny at the same time. So like I go in and out of this light and sinister place with mm-hmm. your work, which is really fun for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know like, I guess this is the position or a section when I sort of describe someone who works. If, if like that lines up with some of the ideas you have or if I'm leaving something out or if I'm overlooking something, 
or do you disagree with anything? No, I mean, it's yes. And in fact, it's interesting to me because I think those, those projector screen pieces, which was the last body of work that I made, um, before coming, before going to Bard. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is a true cliche that when you go to graduate school, they kind of crack you open. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, the, the, there isn't, I, I like the fact that the connection is remains for you between the bodies of work. I would say, Sure. I think some of the things that changed were, uh, as I kind of moved from the film, the filmic reference based works that were sort of revisionist in their materiality. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and the, a certain discretion about what, what they did in the film versus what they did to me as a boy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how they made me a, ma a man, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think a thread throughout all my work has to do with, um, how my, or my own origin story as a, as a human and as mm -hmm. a, and as a, and a lot of it has to do with being a, a boy or a man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think what happened with those projector screen pieces, which were so explicitly about, um, educational apparatuses mm. that were, um, an, an arena or a space with which you learn from, but then the equipment itself has this sort of, um, pregnant, uh, kind of, um, uh, magic to them because mm -hmm. they are, they're promiscuous in the sense that they are blank until they are acted upon. And I think there's something so, um, coming of age sexual about the idea of a blankness until you are acted upon. Yeah. 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 In, in fact, one thing that was literally a burp, <laughs> <laughs> there was one thing, um, where that I was thinking about because I'm really interested in ballet, which almost has to do nothing, not nothing, but it's not so much in this work here, but mm -hmm. it was sort of like leaked in a couple of years ago. Um, one of the things that, that people say when, when a choreographer makes designs or writes a ballet, mm -hmm. um, is for a particular dancer is the, the terminology is the dance was made on, uh, I think, I believe it's made on me. Okay. So, and I th was thinking about what that means for the body and the idea of the, um, the choreography or the arrangement of ideas upon a body. Mm -hmm. So I think that was sort of that projector screen series was, was thinking about, um, the things we see and how we learn from what we see in terms of media and how they make us, mm -hmm. um, what we are. And, yeah. and I think the thing that's grown into this body of work is it seems to me, it feels, I drifted for a second. <laughs> to me, it feels like, um, there is more of a one-to-oneness with this work and it seems less, um, married to anything quotational. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's, there's references here. Sure but it feels more like me, my body, this thing and yeah. re reconciliation. Huh? Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember the, like the screen pieces. One was like almost like a grayscale rainbow form. Right. And mm -hmm. then there was another was almost tie dye. Mm -hmm. Um, just trying to rake my brain for what those were. Totally. And also yeah. the thing that I, the material tweak I made with those pieces is that the projector screen element, um, was made out of t-shirt fabric. Oh, cool. And so I was thinking about how educational apparatuses, are all made and educational equipment and infrastructure is made of extremely resilient materiality mm -hmm. because it expects, um, uh, leakage. It expects body regret. Yeah. Right. And wear, hmm. and those projector screens are, you know, with the metal housing and then it's the sort of this white plasticized vinyl, uh, surface. 
is all meant to deflect that. And I was sort of like, oh, what would it be like if you had if you had to absorb everything that was put upon you? Right, right, right. And so the T-shirt for me is the ubiquitous mediation between body and action. And I love when, like, I remember seeing, um, I was at Printed I worked at Printed Matter a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And we did, I think in the year 2000, there was a Larry Clark ephemera exhibition. And they had in the vitrine a T-shirt from, that was worn by the kid that died, not Leo Fitzpatrick's character, but the Casper character oh, in yeah. Kids. Um, and it was like a, I don't know, it was just like a skateboard t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. And it was the gnarliest sort of like abject shroud of Turin I've ever looked at. And that was- Was it all beat up and used? Yeah, just like yeah, yeah. kid wore it yeah. all summer, Yeah, you know? Um, so anyway, body fluids. No, I get that. I, it's funny you bring up t-shirts. It's, it's something that I utilize too in my practice. Right. It's not out in the open or it's not overt because it gets painted over, mm -hmm. but I wear shirts till they're falling off my shoulders. Amazing. That's material. That's history. That's texture. Definitely. Um, you know what? It's I super embedded for me and like, it's a, it's more, it's a more personal thing mm -hmm. for me, but I identify with, with this idea of the t-shirt as this object that holds all sorts of meaning, mm -hmm. um, good and bad. Um, and it's a, li I yeah. like that it's a threshold object. Yeah. It's the thing between you and the world. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And it's thin. It's thin. And can get shredded at an instant. And, <laughs> and we all, and obviously take to take it to a cultural standpoint, there's always such a, um, a desire for authenticity of the war of the real, the truly worn object. Right. Right. I mean, the way it was put in the Larry Clark show in the vitrine is obviously like, elevating this piece of ephemera mm -hmm. but if you think about that's how we would love like loving to see to find something like that so mm -hmm. that you can then like bleed into the legacy right speaking of materials mm -hmm. um you know maybe we can talk about how how you approach making maybe the more recent stuff sure um you know some of the the works from i don't know five to eight years ago, I feel like included powder coated metal pieces, yep. usually fabricated by someone mm -hmm. fabric. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's this mix between textile and steel, like mm -hmm. something loose and fabricy and something cold and rigid, mm -hmm. but the works we're looking at now, and I think these are the, uh, things you've made in the past year or two mm -hmm. are all wood, right? But there's, they're illusionistic. Like this is for me as a viewer, is made to look like a, like a piece of steel mm -hmm. or painted as such to hide that it's wood. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's material play here and some, some sort of like slight, sleight of hand stuff, which I like, but, um, I, that was like just an annoying setup to ask like yeah. how you start making these things. No, but that's a good point. And I think one, a good question, I think, um, and I mentioned this kind of before we started recording, but yeah. I feel like I've always been a fetishistic maker uh -huh. and, um, and I think I sort of, divine some kind of um pleasure in, in almost in a sexual way out of the um reconciliation of material and making it do things yeah my studio assistant who's been working with me for the past i don't know 12 years um kelsey moore who's an amazing person who you know yeah. obviously yeah um with a lot of times in my studio, we would something would come up and we would resolve something in such a preposterously self-satisfying way that I would say, or one of us would say, I mean, what if this is as good as it gets? Right. In terms of life, in term, right? And um, so I think working with Kelsey was, was a game changer for me because I met my match in terms of a person mm -hmm. who... Um, who was as fetishistic and as, um, sort of like, uh, 
profound in her approach to uh, what material is and what it can do and what yeah. it should be. Yeah. And then I think what happened with this body of work is that I went to Bard and I couldn't bring her <laughs> on some level. So it was all on, on your shoulders. So it was on me and, and in a way that it had been for years, not just it was only Kelsey and me, but I've worked with, as you said, like all these metal fabricators mm -hmm. and powder coaters um, and uh, people that did die cutting and all this stuff for me. And I think it was really like this amazing return to, um, I, you know, Bard College has a horrendous facility. Yep. Um, not, no diss on them. They know it. Um, but it was a kind of an amazing ability to be like, what can I do in a very short amount of time that is true to my vision? And it isn't a crutch and it isn't a placeholder. Right. And I think some people go to Bard even because it's a short window of time. And I think they make works that they're like, okay, and then when I get home, I'll take this sort of general idea and I'll jack it up right. to be a real thing. And I don't, I, I thought I was gonna have to do that. Sure. And the thing that was so amazing is to see that I could actually divine something that I felt was of the same caliber um, there. With with the tools that you're not, don't, that the type of tools or the type of fabricators that you would have back in New York. Sure. Um, and it was I think that's a good thing though. I mean, to make something using what you have in front of you to the best that you can and not not like, you know, it's this whole like, is it the wizard or the, or the wand? Right. Um, I don't know. I believe in like using what you have and, 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 and like it's going to affect the work hopefully in a good way. Definitely. And also, you know, through it all, you might acquire a new skill mm -hmm. or ability. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good, good sort of like force. I think so too. And, but I, I think I had drifted from, yeah. from knowing that was possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's easy to forget. Definitely. Yeah. But you know what I would say too, Joey, is yeah. that the thing that I gained was time. Ah, and so I think a lot of the work that I've been making back here before I went to Bard was because of the fact that I had no time mm -hmm. because I was art handling, right. installing, fabricating and teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and I would be in these hilarious circumstances where I'd be like in East Hampton fucking hanging some cockamamie thing for some client while Kelsey was back in my studio making my work. Right. And it was the only way I could do it. Right. You know? Right. Was there any sort of like... You know, I'm not, uh, you, you know, maybe we could like, like seep into this idea of like using assistance and where, where the, the maker or the author of the thing's mm -hmm. hand comes in versus not. Sure. If, if you have an assistant back at your studio realizing these things um, away, is there any sort of like psychic disconnect for you? Are you totally comfortable with that idea? I mean, I'm always been very comfortable with it yeah. because I was always on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. And I knew, go, you know, I used to, when I was younger, I worked for a bunch of different artists and, um, and I remember solving problems for them. I remember approaching a, a, a point where I could solve their problem because I knew how they would solve the problem. Yeah. And I just had more, um, physical know-how right, right. than a lot of the artists I worked for. And I think with Kelsey, there was sort of this amazing moment that happened very quickly after she started working for me where she solved a few things just that I wasn't present for. Mm -hmm. And even having one conversation with her where she was going to go looking for material. And I was like, I kind of want da, da 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 And she was like, I know what you want. Right. And she does. And, and I think in that way we have this really fun sort of trans medium relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've talked a lot, but this is just to say too, to get to the juicier part of this, we've talked a lot about the authorship thing mm -hmm. over the years. Yeah. Um, it's, I think, unless she has been forthcoming, but I, it's never been a bump for her with my, the way I work with her. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but of course over the years there's funny things where it's like hmm i basically just like literally made this and came up with it right um and i think her as a fabricator herself and as an artist it was it was a learning she was young when she started working for me right out of college yeah so i think figuring that out is important for any person in the creative field yeah and what i always said to her too like i worked for suda beer for a long time is like that is just fundamentally not my work right like yeah i've made complete sculptures for her yeah and they're so hers right right even though my hands made them mm -hmm. you know and i yeah. think there's something actually kind of perversely exciting about that transmedium effect sure um i want to quickly just talk about like because this is like more just my own sort of process system how these are made maybe we could talk about this one right yeah, here real quick totally. i mean this is one of the ones that i described as it looks like it's metal, but it's actually wood. So it's got that illusion to it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this piece is, is straddling a corner in the gallery space here. Um, it looks like um, like a hinge that's come apart. Mm -hmm. They're about the size of a door, but not quite. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's an, alar an enlargement of like an actual hinge. Um, mm -hmm. These look like sort of articulated bullet holes mm -hmm. that are sort of um, each a little hinge and triangle that's flipping out. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you've got like, it looks like oversized pieces of, of mat or, or forms that rep resemble masking tape or right. sections of tape. So there's like these, these adhesions, there's one, two, three, one, two, three. That's my like crackpot description of these things. But did the idea come and then you sort of like sketch it out and then you build it out or like how, like yeah. how does that unfold? Great, 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 great question. Yeah. So yes, I think uh, all of the works I've ever made uh, have come from a drawing. Okay. Um, and that, uh, and in this case, because this is one in a series of works that were involved, similar materiality, similar um, uh, paint treatment and this notion of things hinging. That yeah. was like the conceit. And also I should just say before that projector screen series, I'd never made a series of works ever. Okay. I just like made one crazy, ridiculous, expensive and long drawn out thing yeah. and then recovered and then just shifted. Yeah. And turns out you learn something from making, <laughs> you know, iterations. Yes. Yes. So in, I think with this piece, particularly I was thinking about, um, the idea, well, one of the things I was thinking about continually was this idea of, of what I was calling minor transgressions, okay. which are, which I think of as moments in one's life. And I, I tag this to adolescence specifically when you feel like you have the least amount of agency, um, where you do something that is a violation of another thing, but it is very, very quiet. Hmm. It's not like what cinema often shows you of adolescence where they, it boils over and they like kill a cat or you break all the dishes in your parents' house or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like my feeling was like my relationship, and it's probably has a lot to do with me as a person, of transgression was this thing I did in my room with the door shut very, very quietly and re probably regretted it instantly and no one ever heard it or saw it. Right. So one thing I was thinking about was about the pencil, the sharp pencil, which is it comes up into play in this show as well. Mm -hmm. And thinking about looking at images, like in magazines, that um, you might have some desire to look at, and uh, not that it's explicitly, explicitly like pornography or something, mm -hmm. but it could just be something you can't, I don't know if you had this experience as a young person, just like wanting to look at uh, some page in a magazine again and again, sure. right? Um, some of it was related to girls or women. Um, some of it was related to 
icons that I was trying to unpack their existence. Sure. And then um, with my pencil poking a hole in them, right? And piercing I think, it, piercing them, right? And it obviously has all this connotation of, you know, violation uh, of form and mm-hmm. also proposed, you know, um, violation of a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think I also I would see like in the subways posters, uh, advertisements where people would have like picked away the eyes yeah. and stabbed at them, you know? And I think, but that to me, is that's so public and this yeah. was so private. Yeah. So or even like drawing a mustache on the person. Exactly. I mean, we all did that when we were kids. Oh, totally. Maybe we all did that. Yeah. In fact, and sometimes I feel like Hollywood sets us up for sure. it. In fact, there was a poster many years ago for an Amanda Bynes film called What a Girl Wants. And it's her standing uh, with like her legs spread, like standing like confidently. And she's putting up the kind of the peace sign of two, two fingers. Yeah. You can't call a film What a Girl Wants with the her holding up two yeah. and not just ask for all of New York City to reply as to what she might be looking for sure. in the most grotesque sure. way. Or invite those like collage people to trim things up exactly. on, this, on, the, on, the, on the poster on the subway platform. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think with, so with this, going back to this work specifically, I was thinking about the idea of trans, minor transgression and, and when it meets regret. So violation of a perfect form like the perfect glossy page of a magazine and then you puncture it and then this idea of trying to heal it hmm. uh, uh clumsily i.e just covering yep. with masking tape what has been uh transgressed and then also in, within this side of this thing um what happens with the blowout like right, right? The, the the thing that blows through to yeah. the other side and the fact that if you're looking at sort of the I would think of this gray as the backside of a thing mm-hmm. and think, cause a lot of this is processed through the idea of what primer is. Yeah. Cause none of these are painted. It's all prime mm-hmm. and primer is the sort of like the first stage yeah. of material. And I always think of the connotation of gray primer as being like, Oh, that's the underbody mm-hmm. or that's the back mm-hmm. and white primer is like, that's going to have a face. Mm. So that's why I was using the gray and oh, okay. white as sort of like, this is the proposed backside of that. I see. So the so the whole locations are mirror opposite. Yep, of where I see they, it now. You know, mm-hmm. and even just that you get this little bit of that Malibu peach color, which is the Benjamin Moore pink that yeah. I use. Yeah, um, kind of illustrating that maybe the other side of this is flesh, or yeah. or inside of a body. Yeah, I meant to bring that up when I was describing your work. I like that pink, or that I guess that you call it Malibu pink does mm-hmm. have like a like a fleshy vibe to it, particularly like a, like a European tint. Totally. Um, or I was even thinking it's like, uh, irregardless of skin color, it's that yeah. color when you burn yourself and then the wound heals and sure. you peel the scab off oh, yeah. and all of a sudden you're like, Oh my God, it's, it's like raw soon. fresh. It's like raw or and it's, or it's like inside the mouth. Yeah, it's yeah. just a weird color. Yeah. Yeah. Internal. Internal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like how these two are like, there's that play. There's like, it's sequential in a way, like one leads to the other. Mm-hmm. It's a literal hinge coming apart. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't pick up quite, quite, quite right away on the like mirror tape, like, mm-hmm. but like, I'm like, it, it's sitting now, it's landing for me. And one of the, yeah. the kind of nerdy clues, Joey, yeah. is that the hinge knuckles are in the same location. I noticed that. And I, I wasn't sure if that was intentional or like, whoops, I, you know, yeah. Because it's supposed to be the same object. I see. It's the front and the back. Right. I see. It's as if you... Yeah, there's plenty of clues in there. Mm-hmm. You just got to spend a little bit more time with it. Well, but for and, people that get get sure. nerdy on the mm-hmm. mechanics of 
yeah hinge knuckles. of of <laughs> of hinges or even like like i did some woodworking when i was younger and mm-hmm. like when i when you pointed out these are actually wood i was like oh man how did you turn that like i said like all those little hinges are like dowels that have been mitered just at the right angle yeah. um Scary. so the craftsmanship in these is i mean i'm responding to that too cool um, yeah it's great thank you um yeah i wonder if we could quickly talk you know there's a lot i want to try and cram sure. in but um, a reoccurring question I ask people is, is sort of like where their headspace is while they're working, mm-hmm. like, like the psychology of mm-hmm. one while they're making this cool. stuff. Are you able to sort of wander or are you thinking about the task at hand and like the, like what these mean or are you like, what's for dinner tonight? Like good call. Yeah. I mean the thing that I was always going back to this idea of making things serially, which I lament that I didn't do when I was younger and mm-hmm. I probably should have, mm-hmm. um, uh, that there's something in there's something in getting lost in the process that is so exciting for me. And it was tricky when I was younger because I was so moving around so much in terms of making different kinds of things. Yeah. So I was, I'd never, I always felt exhausted because I never had that time that I imagine painters have more of where you can get in that space where you, right. right? Um, but I think with this body of work, I was able to do that a lot more because huh. okay. there's, there's a lot of repeated, I mean, making those little hinges, took so fucking long yeah and there's some math in there and there's a lot of math yeah and then there's a lot of just like repeat do repeat do repeat do repeat yeah. and i think yes i am able to think about that but and um but i also try to do things to get in that zone and one of the things i was doing making this body work is i listened to one song over and over again what song it was the song broken chairs by built to spill oh wow it's the last song on on that record and it proposes as though it has never ended because it fades out. Mm-hmm. And it actually fades out in a moment in the song that's so good, it's almost a crime that they start pulling the fucking things down on the board. Mm-hmm. And something about listening to that song, I probably listened to it you know, a couple hundred times. Um, sanding. There's so much sanding in this work. It was mm-hmm. insane. Um, but there's something about that that I felt like I could channel this adrenaline that felt never ending. Yeah. And it felt a little like what I imagine the term chasing the dragon is where you're always trying to get back to that high. Yeah. 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 Um, that's like an opium den thing, isn't it? Totally. So so there was something in that song that, um, that propelled me. And I think I I felt good because I must've had a revelation about making these when I was listening to it. And so my mind was like, if I keep listening to it, I'll stay in that revelation. I, I like that. I identify with that too. Like sort of setting some sort of psychological stage. Right. That's, that's almost predictable. You know, it's going to be the song over and over again. Mm-hmm. And that sort of keeps you in sort of holds you in space in, in place while you get through this physical and emotional effort. Totally. Something and like that. Exactly. Yeah. I always wonder too, like this, I talked about this in high school with Jordan actually a lot. Yeah. When a song fades out, there is this really melancholic thinking that you never will know how long they jammed. Right. And what other things we don't have to know from that session. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, I remember we were sitting on his bed and we were listening to um, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. By the Chili Peppers? By the Red Chili Peppers. <laughs> so I just dated our my age and our time at that <laughs> yeah, time period. Right. Let's just say it had come out very recently. Um, and there's that song that's called Sir Psycho Sexy. And I know, and that, and it fades out in this way where John Frusciante is playing guitar in the most elliptical, like fucking dreamy SoCal way. Mm-hmm. And it, and Jordan, we like, it fades out. And then Jordan said, it feels as though they never stopped playing that song. I think that's good. Yeah. That's a good read. 
I've I've heard musicians tell me, oh, if they if this if the band's fading it out on their record, they just didn't know how to end the fucking song. Oh, which I may imagine is possible. That could be a thing. You know, I don't know. Um, maybe we could put art down for a second. I mean, we're sure. never really putting art down. No. But I want to I want to touch base about parenting. Okay. Because that's something that you and I connected on. Definitely. On top of the art, and it's in here, and it's in here. Yeah. Um, but so maybe that's a good setup. Like, mm-hmm. how did becoming a parent affect you as an artist i mean there's the obvious things right there's the, like the time and the energy time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the economy and the economy of it but I, i'm wondering if it affected your ideas or your conception of 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 even on a practical level like the the prospect of um being an artist is some form of career mm-hmm. um and like whether or not that's responsible because it's you know we all know it's hard to to earn a living through this stuff. Completely. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, um, it affected me in a lot of ways. Sure. And I think it led to the whole thing I was talking about in the dorm parking lot of sure. making the decision to move to LA. Um, also I felt that I, 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 I'm over it in, in a lot of ways, but I, I've kind of felt early on in my career that there was no way I was ever going to be able to do this. And I think, Part of it was my dogma of the way I made things, realizing quickly, not working serially, making works that are extremely elaborate and expensive Mm -hmm. um, and take up physical real estate. It just seemed pointed to disaster. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a moment, there was a time period where I felt really sad about that. And it was, I think, around the time that all my friends were kind of getting picked up by galleries. And it was like, felt like it was like 2008 and all of my friends were like ready to have their first solo show with a commercial gallery. And a lot of them were upstart galleries where it was like ground floor. And, um, I had had my first solo show in 2005 years before most of my friends, but it was like this kind of once in a lifetime opportunity that wasn't attached to a proper commercial gallery. Mm -hmm. So I think then that, I think I then felt at certain point that this wasn't about going to ever be about that. It wasn't going to be possible. And in a way that was liberating. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think, that led to the realization though at some point that I needed to take my academic career more seriously, grow my business more seriously if I was ever going to be able to afford doing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think having Ives made me, um, I know this sounds kind of cliche, but, um, I didn't understand that how amazing that would be. Yeah. Um, and how profound it is to be a parent, mm-hmm. um, and how much I want for him to have a, a thoughtful and rich life sure. um, in all respects. So I think that, that um, I kind of quickly knew that I, that this was a part of my life that was going to have to change pretty dramatically if it was going to stay a part of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, But just conceptually for a second, I think one of the funniest revelations in having a child and making my work is I was now actually dealing head on with all of the abjection that I was, that was, I was hovering around and, and describing in the work. Yeah. Because now a lot of my life is about feces <laughs> and mucus yeah. and urine and blood sometimes and blood yep. um, and vomit. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the things that I was processing through this harsh filter of cleanliness and abstraction was real. Yeah. Um, funny reconciliation. That's, that's great. You know, it's like, I mean, that's, that's, that's awareness. I appreciate when someone's aware of those connections yeah. and it's right in front. Yeah, um, totally. I also think like we're in a, in, in potentially a, I mean, it depends on what day of the week you ask me, but a great position as 
artists slash creative people to have children because mm-hmm. I think that's that that's like that's a life of interest and intrigue mm-hmm. and mystery mm-hmm. and um, you know sort of sort of risk taking or adventure mm-hmm. that other career paths or way like life paths don't necessarily invite right um so i i think about that i mean i guess just to rebound my own experience real quick is you know my dad was a business person Uh, my mom was a teacher Mm -hmm. um i never really understood what my dad did um he would he was gone monday through friday we'd come home we'd have dinner and all it was great um but there was a disconnect between like what he did right um every day while he was gone Mm -hmm. and um i know i think because of like the sort of fluidity that someone like me has to do in terms of like bringing the kid to work sometimes or, Mm -hmm. or like doing work at home and, and like all the overlap of, of art career parenting Mm -hmm. is really cool for the, for my kids to see. And I'm glad that they're seeing that through triumph and struggle. Yeah. Um, anyways, I feel like that I I just ranted a little bit. No, but I think there's something about what I see that in you so much. Yeah. And, um, and I think something I always think is kind of amazing about you is the fluidity with which your every aspect of your life seems to f- seems to just have to flow in and out. Yeah. You know, um, and I've seen you, you know, change studios and I've seen you do make certain kinds of works and change different kinds of, you know, and yeah. and um, have to deal with driving your son around so that until he falls asleep yeah. and all that stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, we graduated I, from that finally though. Thank God. Yeah. I yeah. was going to ask you that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I feel like that's to me, I, I always wondered, this is funny actually that I'm telling you this in person. Cause I always wondered if it was something about being a painter that afforded that level of fluidity in a way that, um, I was really scared before I had Ivy. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the way, I work, I was like, I, this, there is no room for a baby Yeah, um, in the studio. Yeah. And I always thought of like painters as being like, like, you know, you've seen Ryan Wallace's studio. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Walker can go in there and he might even just make the work better. Yeah. 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 Right. By, by dancing on it or something. Totally. Yeah. But that can't, doesn't fly in the way I sure. make things. Sure. Um, no, I get that. I mean, maybe it's as simple as, you know, how you described the shop at Bard. Right. Not ideal but you figured it out. Right. I think that's what we do as artists with kids. Right. That's, that sounds shitty. It's, it is ideal. I think I don't want to like mm-hmm. take that away. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like something that's in front of you that you build around and figure out how to work with. Yeah. And I didn't understand that I could be, um, flexible. Yeah. I think I, I right. Right. I think maybe that's all I was trying to get at the flexibility aspect. Right. And yeah. I guess one thing you could say from looking at my work is that there is a laughable amount of the wrangling of control, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think w- I wrote this text, uh, that Ruby and Danny actually published here and it was, it was originally used as my like thesis for Bard. Um, but I got so obsessed with the writing of it and, yeah. it, um, that I was like, this needs to be read by more than just like Cameron Martin who, who lovingly edited it so yeah. many times. And, and in that, a lot of it, I talk about, um, cleaning, I uh, doing, doing dishes is one thing that comes up a lot. And, um, cleaning things as a way of gaining a semblance of control in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is still a, thing, a big part of my life. Totally. Let, let's talk about, I mean, this is, I, I feel like I need to like shout this out. This is a, a first for me. I usually do these recordings in people's studios. Oh. This is the first one I've done in a in a gallery space. Oh, that's cool. Um, and we're sitting in the midst of your show, which just opened up last night. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about 
what it feels like to show this stuff versus like see it in in a like your studio mm-hmm. like i mean for me there's there's a there's a shift that takes place mm-hmm. once it leaves leaves my studio and goes into an exhibition space mm-hmm. there's like a different weight and a different experience around it i don't know if that is it anything like that for you is it all sort of one thing like an e- like an easy exchange between the two um i mean i yeah. a lot of the times i never get to see the pieces fully realized until they're at a gallery okay because there's like a scale problem or there's a an assembly issue mm-hmm. especially when it's making larger scale pieces yeah but even at bard i had a i had the, i this is such a psycho thing to admit but i got a studio my first summer at bard and then every s- subsequent summer i kept the same studio which doesn't really happen like mm-hmm. i didn't i didn't pick a bigger studio when i could because i was an upperclassman i just yeah. kept the same one and i think this goes back to the broken chairs of it all which was that something in there worked and I didn't want to fuck around. Yeah. And the thing about that studio is that it had only eight foot high walls and every single piece I made was, could not be contained by it. Right. But I do think there's something that gets built into that where it's sort of low key thrilling to only see the shit come together when it's go time. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that happens uh, almost always. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Um, I should, I should say that this is we're at, we're in, we're at downstairs projects, which right. is an artist run space, um, in Windsor Terrace, Brooklyn, and mm-hmm. people should come see the show. I should have asked you, is there anything like you definitely want to talk about, um, that I didn't text you about earlier? Um, I mean, I'm trying to, re- I mean, I guess the thing that's always on the forefront of my mind this past like four months is reconciling this funny split personality sure. thing. And, and also what I was thinking about and what I was making and now what I, for my job, uh, um, have to think about yeah. and, and make quote unquote in the sense of cause things to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, um, the thing that one of my biggest fears about working in Hollywood was the fact that I haven't been focused on, um, linear narrative in a really long time. Right. Although I'm, although I watch film and television and I'm really interested in it. It wasn't, I, what I was doing was the exact opposite. I was like boiling down. Right. Right. Um, but what I've found interestingly is that through the process of development and, and, um, the making of a, of a film or a television show, there's a lot of boiling down Mm -hmm. that happens because that's the way people understand what, how to make what they call a Bible, which is like for a television show, Okay. which is basically like these things shall always be the case Right. for the location, the characters, the, the kind of general arc of, of the experience. Right. And so in that sense, I think that all of my teaching and all of my education and graduate education was all like really good. Yeah. I I feel like, I mean, actually rolling into Hollywood after going out of Bard college MFA program was like doing like one armed pushups. I was definitely like prepared to talk about the content of art. Yeah. 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 (laughs) You know, um, but I'm still trying to figure out like, I mean, one other component I'll just add to this yeah. is that we are a monkey paw productions, which is the company that I'm the creative director for mm-hmm. as per Jordan Peele is trying to make film and television that is artful and that has, um, a, a, an, an, you know, a very palpable social consciousness, mm-hmm. but that is also risky and, um, maybe everyone won't love 
but everyone feels that they have to see it. Right. And, and that the drive is to make something that is, is commercially viable. Right. So it's not like if I, if I was working for like a 24 or like Annapurna or something, I think I would feel like, Oh, I can just this, you know, I, pick up a script that's really esoteric and fascinating and really connect with it. And I feel like I could be like, I could, yeah, of course. But with monkey paw, it's like finding that thing plus that other component. Sure. So we're threading shit through a needle. That's like pretty small. Yeah. Eye. I think that's good criteria that you just went down. Yeah. Right. Um, and I imagine that you're like, I mean, your, your brain as well as <laughs> your um, interest and love of images and forms. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just going to come in handy. Totally. Um, and I think it's important to mention that you're like, what, three months into this new gig and this new life? Yeah, it's crazy. And the three, I mean, in the three months, it's been like October, November, December, yeah. January. Yeah, four months Yeah, is has been the craziest um, imaginable Yeah, in terms of who I work with. Yeah, and I think before we, we hit record, you said that like, uh, and you know, this is sort of like well-traveled road, but like the, 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 the like, back and forth or, or like choice to leave New York to go to LA or LA to come to New York. You said that your life, your quality of life improved drastically mm-hmm. once you left New York to LA. Dramatically. Yeah. And I can't emphasize that enough. Yeah. And I, it, the, the tricky thing is not coming back, you know, from LA after three, four months of working in Hollywood and sounding like a dick mm-hmm. to everybody, to everybody being like, Oh my God, you guys, you should totally move to LA. Right, right, right. It's just a lot better. But I, I think, um, I feel like it was some Phoenix rising from the ashes type shit yeah. because I feel like what people that know me well, I have a confidence that I can say, you guys, I'm doing a lot better. Sure. My life is better. Um, my family's life is better. Uh-huh. Um, I feel, uh, physically, um, less destroyed. Um, and, and everyone that knows me well knows that's not just like. I'm leading with a brag. I'm yeah, literally yeah, yeah, yeah. like, you guys, I made it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had friends that were literally, you know, worried about me. Yeah. Uh, my wife was, I mean, I was worried for my, for everything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited too. Uh, I was going to ask you um, what, like a piece of culture that you're excited about, but you kind of fed it to me. Mm. I wanted to talk about Oz Perkins. Okay. Um, this is a, a film director that... Um, I, I'm, I didn't know too much about, but mm-hmm. I looked up um, his most recent film called Black Coat's Daughter, mm-hmm. and I watched the trailer just to sort of like grease me for Great. this little bit of back and forth. Great. And it, like in the first 10 seconds, it's like, I think I understand why Ian liked this. <laughs> the, I think it was the protagonist was mm-hmm. this um, young, almost like high school age girl mm-hmm. with jet black dyed hair <laughs> um, at like... A, it looks what looked like a Catholic school, and mm-hmm. it like it's like a slow pan of her walking through this room, and just above her is this jet black crucifix that's kind <laughs> of bull. It's like that's could be an Ian Cooper sculpture, <laughs> but um, I mean that's sort of the obvious stuff. But tell me why why you're into Oz Perkins. So um, one of the we have, I work with a film executive um, uh, who's great, and she has really amazing taste, uh, and it's and she came she had come from Fox uh, to work with us so she's coming from a studio mm-hmm. and uh, one of the very first scripts that she was like you guys got to read this um, was a script written by Oz Perkins it's a film that hasn't been yet made mm-hmm. um, and I read it at my in-laws house where I was staying I remember sitting on their balcony reading it and I had read a bunch of scripts before this right um, 
stuff to prepare for the job and things that we were working on. And, um, and obviously I read get out a million times. Um, and there was something about Oz's writing that from paid from like kind of like minute one, I was just taken, um, in this way that I have rarely in my life or a few times in my life, I've read something where I knew that I was guilty by proxy Mm -hmm. and that this person was like almost whispering directly into my ear. And that's part of the way he writes, which I should say is pretty incredible is that a lot of times you read a screenplay and it's so procedural, right? It's like, this is how the, because this is going to be a blueprint for the film, Mm -hmm. right? But the way he writes, even the procedural stuff is so um, menacing like, so almost like, you know, when you read Faulkner and you're just like, wow, I can't really trust any of these um, narrators. Yeah, yeah. Right? His narrator, who you, by default, you imagine is him, will suggest things to you, the person reading the script, that are, like, depraved, that are just, like, just a skew of not really objective anymore okay. about what's happening. So there's this looming voice that um, uh, sort of supersedes your way, your the way the film is colored for you. Sure. And it's, it's like the way I can describe it best is that the thing is really wet. Yeah. The writing is just dripping. Yeah. And I should um, clarify genre wise. This is horror. Good call. Correct. Yes, right. This is a hor- he's a horror film. So it's, it's, it's unsettling stuff. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. um, which some of like, some of your work has that vibe for me too. And I, and I can see a connection. Like I'm always looking for like where life intersects with our art. Mm-hmm. And when you shot me this director, I was like, and I watched the trailer. I was like, there it is. There's another example. Totally. Um, and I should mention also, yeah. interestingly, Oz Perkins is the son of Anthony Perkins, i.e. the murderer in Psycho. Oh, wow. Oh, that's right. I think I read that in the uh, like his little IDMB or whatever that website mm-hmm. is. Yeah. So Norman Bates, is, and actually Jordan and I were at Universal uh, Studios back yeah. lot recently. He was doing yeah. an interview, and they were walking, he and the interviewer were walking through the Bates Motel uh-huh. set, and I took a picture of the sign and I texted it to Oz and I said, um, you know, we're visiting your childhood home right now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a, like talk about like being raised by or around creative things and art and tone and images. I mean, there you go. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, what about support structure? I think that's important to talk about. Um, like I want to believe that, um, our artwork is the sum of many moving parts, mm-hmm. be they things and people mm-hmm. and or people. Mm-hmm. Um, does anything or pe- per people, persons mm-hmm. come to mind as mm-hmm. like the supportive instruments behind that, that allow this work to exist, allow this work to be made? Great point. Great yeah. question. Yes, definitely. And I mean, I think um, the number one thing I would say, it's, it's interesting actually, because there's, there's the making of things, the support structure, first of all, the Rachel Foulon of it all is um, pretty epic. Yeah, that's your partner. That's my partner, um, who is also an artist mm-hmm. and is also a, a very magical maker um, and one of the most profound thinkers I know. Um, and I think I'm in a way. A lot of times I make things in the hopes that she will smile and um, acknowledge how insane yeah. it is. Yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and then I would also say, um, I think about certain people sometimes when I'm making things. Um, when I was working on this most recent body of work, I was thinking a lot about Cameron Martin, 
who is uh, who's now a friend, but who is also my, he's the co-chair of the painting department at Bard. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought a lot about Taylor Davis, who is, who is a sculptor, and she is the co-chair of the sculpture department at Bard. And kind of like the things that I know that are fetishistic about both of their practices, mm-hmm. I would sort of tune up in my, I felt like I was tuning up in my own work. Um, okay, I'll unravel this further. Um, I definitely, my whole life, a lot of the, if you read this essay I wrote, which I'll send to you, yeah. um, a lot of, I think where my work comes from is pleasure and pleasing. And I think as a personality, um, since I was a child, I was really, I really tried to please, um, my parents, um, my mom in certain ways. I really tried to please my dad in some, in certain ways, which was often a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should say he's a, a maker of like, preposterous precision mm-hmm. um relentless i would mm-hmm. say and um and i think a lot of times i get in the zone where i'm sort of romancing my dynamic with someone mm-hmm. and i want to tune tune them into what i'm doing yeah. you know um and one thing i should mention too in this support structure conversation is um is dave kennedy cutler mm-hmm. um because i spent so much time with him dave is an artist who is a mutual friend of ours mm-hmm. Um, who is you ran a small business with him exactly as art handlers and and I I couldn't have done that without him Mm -hmm. Um, although the business is doing much better without me apparently (laughs) (laughs) from what I hear yeah he's like yeah I'm booking like six plane tickets to Palm Springs and I'm booking hotels yeah that didn't happen when I was in the business (laughs) Um, but Dave provided me with something that um, it was unique in the sense that he was always down to completely and thoroughly unpack an idea. And often it got to the point where in most recent years, I wouldn't even, I couldn't name any of my artworks. I couldn't give titles to any of the works um, without running them through Dave. Right. You know, I do that too with titles. I don't trust myself with titles or language or like written language as much. I have to rebound it off someone whose like point of view is important to me so yeah I, I like that i feel like that's a, almost in a way it seems irresponsible to make something that you spend so much time in that is non-verbal yeah and then for you same person to be like slap sticker yeah and it's called yeah that. yeah 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 and i feel like a lot of times i look at artist titles and i'm like oof yeah not a good idea i run away from it a lot of my stuff is untitled with some descriptor in parentheses because right. you can look up words it has specific meaning and sometimes that is too overwhelming for me me too yeah so i do you know what i've been doing is untitled and then i'll do parenthetical a little flirtatious like driblet of an idea yeah 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 but i couldn't like a tease like a tease (laughs) yeah but i couldn't possibly bring that out of parentheses yeah yeah um that's great what about um this is sort of like nearing the end here but driving force well before that you know i think with this new sort of identity as like uh um um, working in film uh-huh. as a creative director, is there going? Do, do you have you found space? Is there going to be space to to make these along make work alongside of that? Is there any sort of overlap, or is it sort of just not conducive right now? Which is okay, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um. So yes, I mean, obviously, as you said, I've only been in LA for since the beginning of October. Yeah. And it's now uh, end of January. Um, I would. I think I will say yes to that answer. I mean, to that question. Yeah. Um, in the sense that I think, I don't think this is the last fine art exhibition that I will fucking execute. Right. Um, but I am, I do predict that I'm on a wild ride right now. 
and that the ride is, I imagine and hoping will be extreme as fulfilling as it promises currently. And that that will be, that will satiate some of this creativity in a way that I couldn't have imagined previous. Right. And, um, and one of the things that I should mention is that I'm going to be a producer on Jordan's next film. And I've been sort of acting as his sort of like his, essentially his writing partner. Um, even though the film will be a written and directed by Jordan Peele film, I'm sort of helping him. My, I would just say my producerial role is in the creative and in the structuring of the film with him. Mm -hmm. Um, and it has been, I mean, it's been really magical. Cool. And he's an amazing thinker and it's a privilege to be helping. And I, and I feel like I, I can finally say with confidence that I feel like I'm helping. Yeah. It's not just like I'm sitting next to him like fucking. One of the things I asked him actually <laughs> before I took the job, because basically after Wynn called me, yeah. the phone call I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, um, he called me after. Uh-huh. And when Jordan called, he, I could tell on some level he was almost performing because he was leaning in so hard. He was just like, tis time, my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things I asked him is I was crying a lot in that conversation because it was pretty intense. And I um, imagine. And I said, I don't, I just want to make sure I'm not going to be like Turtle from Entourage. Oh, right, right, right. And he was laughed, of course, and he was like, no, man, that's not what this is about. Right. And of course, my biggest fear is like my best friend in, my, in, in the world and, and he can afford to have me there. Yeah. And I just want to make sure it's not just and he also knew about all the NYU job bullshit stuff. Yeah. And, and I think he um, that's where you were teaching. That's where I was teaching previously. Yeah. And yeah. I kind of bled out for them. And, mm-hmm. and at the very end, sort of was like, yeah, this is the ceiling. My yeah. friend. Yeah. Um, and he was like, no, not at all. And, um, and I believe it. Yeah. And I can feel it. Yeah. I want to imagine too that, you know, I, I believe in this idea that like art flows over us Yep. and yes, this is a new endeavor for you, but I feel like even if you're not making these, I'm looking forward to your mind and your way of seeing manifest itself in some capacity yep. in the next movie tv mm-hmm. show or whatever so i'm excited to sort of like 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 it's almost like an ian cooper scavenger i'm like there there's his <laughs> there's something i know that was his idea i think that could be great totally um, i think and i think in this next film i think there's some of that in in get out yeah um and uh there are certainly funny easter eggs like characters that are uh like my, my mom's name is rose and my dad, who is Allison Williams' character, and my dad's name is Jim, who's uh-huh. the, the character who is hopeful, hopeful of the yeah. brain transplant. Oh, wow. And um, so there's stuff like that that's yeah, more yeah, of yeah. an homage to our long-term friendship. Yeah, um, and your history. And our history. Yeah, yeah. And um, my parents were hilarious about that. They were like, we saw the film, and wow, we hope that's not what Jordan thinks about <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah, right. Can you share the name of the I'm not allowed to okay, share the title, okay. um, but I can. What I can say about the forthcoming film is that um, we're pl- we're hoping to shoot it uh, later this year, mm-hmm. and um, and the the release of it will probably be similar to when Get Out came out, which was uh, you know in the early part of 2019. Right. Um, it's also a social thriller, and um, I can say with utmost confidence that it is going to be terrifying, um, and more. I would I would argue more so than Get Out, mm-hmm. um, and it is sort of uh there i think people will be surprised on some level at the scope and the the breadth of jordan's artful 
thinking mm-hmm. um, that will make Get Out seem really awesomely lean and economical, which is which it is. Yeah, you know. Yeah, um, I mean, you, this is this is sort of slippery. Like sometimes I like to keep my my goals in okay. because if I let them out then I'm, I'm accountable to someone. And I don't know how you feel like it. Hmm. Do you have like, are you comfortable sharing? Like these are a few things I want to try and ac- accomplish um, that I see between me and the horizon. Hmm. Um, does anything come to mind? Do you have any goals or hopes or dreams or like, even if it's off the wall, like mm-hmm. there's no fucking way I'm going to do this, but I'd love to. Um, does anything jump to mind? In, in, in terms of life or in art making or Both. anything? All the above. Um, I guess my immediate goal and part of the thrill of the move is that I will find myself in a, in a, like a, like a better sense of self, um, in my new, in my new career, um, and in my new life. And that will somehow that will, I know this sounds, I don't know, embarrassing to say, but, um, I just hope that I can gain more confidence and, um, and I hope I can parlay that confidence to my son and my wife and have it be like a, um, I, I just I have a lot not a lot riding on this move but um, because I think in ways in some ways it's already f- f- been fulfilling mm-hmm. um, but I really my goal is that I am able to like provide for my son and my family in a way that is um, has an ease to it that doesn't have the same level of like just torture that the past few years have felt like right. and that in a way that will make me um, I know I'm a better I am a better person version of myself when I, when I have mental health time and I am present. Um, and I, I think that's like, I know that sounds so basic, but like my, that's like my main goal, man. I mean, I think that basic stuff eludes us so quickly. Yeah. So, um, getting back to it's huge. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think this is a great spot to kind of like bookend it. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's funny. It's like, I feel like we haven't ever dig, dug in like this before i know what a thrill really um, me too me too thanks so much for being uh, part of this project and being so generous and um yeah man i want to come visit you in la awesome you All should right. you thanks definitely Ian. should we've made it to the end A quick reminder that listeners can learn more about this project and the artists featured by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also show support by making a donation via the PayPal link and subscribe to the series in iTunes. Thank you for listening and check back soon for a new episode.